Hello and welcome to ADC Spotlight, the monthly podcast that discusses issues pertinent to child health with guests who make you think about areas not usually explored. I'm Rachel Becko, Senior Editor of Archives of Disease in Childhood, and this is ADC Spotlight. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Amanda Friend. She's a paediatric oncologist currently at Birmingham's Children's Hospital. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me today. Our pleasure. So we'll be having a conversation about your paper, published in the uh, March 22 issue of ADC, and it was on behalf of the Children's Cancer and Leukemia Group, Late Effects Working Group, based in the UK. Let's just start with what it is that you set out to understand and why. So I think we were working as the, the Late Effects Working Group on some new guidelines and some new um, working guides for fertility preservation in young people with cancer. And just in the courses of some of our discussions, it became clear that there was regional variation in what was happening. Um, So we had representation from various large centres around the UK. And just from informal chats, it became clear that things were not happening in an equal way and that there were more referrals from some centres and some centres seemed to be uh, having different funding opportunities. Um, So it felt like there was an imbalance in what was being offered. So we were really keen to try and formalise that and rather than just having this suspicion that things were not necessarily equitable, we wanted to formalise that and find out actually exactly what each centre was doing and, if possible, why it was that they were doing that. Okay, so inequity is a topic close to my heart and it's uh, thankfully it's coming more to, uh, to the fore. Before we go into that aspect, though, Amanda, I was just wondering whether you could talk a bit more to what fertility preservation uh, actually actually is. What is it that we're talking about? Essentially, we're talking about anything which aims to preserve the reproductive capacity of a child or young person undergoing cancer treatment. So one of the most well-known side effects of lots of different forms of cancer treatment, be that chemotherapy or, or radiotherapy, or in some cases surgery, is subfertility or infertility. And there are a variety of options which are some more established technologies and some less well-established, which aim to preserve that. Um, and that might range from in a, a post-pubescent boy, it may be something relatively straightforward to do in terms of obtaining a semen sample and and that undergoing cryopreservation or it may become an invasive surgical procedure for either testicular or ovarian cryopreservation which particularly in the case of testicular cryopreservation is a much more experimental strategy but there are also other things that we can do to preserve fertility so that may involve using hormone blockers to temporarily um, protect um, tissues. It may involve manipulation or shielding. So if a patient's having pelvic radiotherapy, for example, sometimes we may choose to just manipulate the ovary so it's out of the radiation field. So there's a whole range of things which are 
are considered facility preservation. But what we were specifically looking at in our paper was the cryopreservation of either mature eggs or sperm or ovarian or testicular tissue. So what I'm hearing is that you can think of interventions that are not necessarily about cryopreservation of either testicular or ovarian matter Mm. and to start there. But once you've done that, then there are other techniques which are available and can be used. And so how would you characterise the cryopreservation? Is it mostly mainstream or is some of it still experimental? Certainly, cryopreservation of of semen is something that's been done for a very long time, and that's fairly mainstream. Um, And cryopreservation of mature um, oocyte cells, again, is relatively mainstream. The cryopreservation of ovarian or testicular tissue is a little more experimental. There are, particularly for postpubertal girls, there are case reports of babies having been born uh, following ovarian cryopreservation. But at the moment, testicular um, cryopreservation for the prepubertal males remains something that's highly experimental. However, this is something that we're doing on children who may be looking at having their own children in 10, 15, 20 years time. So it's something that we're doing in the hope that in two decades, there may be the technology to allow us to use that tissue. Okay, so if we're looking at, say, pre-pubertal children, the options available to them to preserve their fertility is not usually something where you think about in what you think about in pre-pubertal children. Um, what would that entail for them? Generally, it is it's a surgical procedure and it is additional surgical um, procedure to other to other things that they might be going through. And generally in in girls, it would be a, a laparoscopic oophorectomy that our surgeons would perform locally. But in other places, they are, again, laparoscopically doing ovarian tissue stripping, where they're just taking some samples of tissue from the ovary. And similar for boys, there are um, the options of either whole testicular removal and cryopreservation or stripping of tissue. Okay. And what about postpubertal children? So for postpubertal children, um, for if you've got a boy who's able to produce a semen sample, that's generally relatively straightforward. Um, once they overcome their own reservations they may or may not have about how that sample is obtained. In postpubertal girls, you have two options. So you can harvest mature oocytes. That does involve a stimulation cycle, so the same um, treatment that you would have prior to something like in vitro fertilisation, where you have to stimulate the ovary and then harvest the egg cells, which obviously comes with the time component. Um, so more and more people tend to be favouring in in sort of the paediatric world the option of just taking ovarian tissue and um, particularly a whole ovary, with a view to re-implanting that later once treatment's finished. So thanks for explaining the technical background. And I'm, and I'm just wondering, what do the guidelines say? Do we have guidelines in this area? So, yeah, there are guidelines, and they basically say that we should 
offer it to everybody or at least discuss we should discuss it with everybody we should offer it to everyone in whom it's appropriate and that generally means if it's possible to do it without undue delays to their cancer treatment and um, it should be offered but there is a lack of guidance on what then happens to the tissue how long it's stored for and some of that will depend on um, different local trusts will have different policies and um, I know that there is a trust I've previously um, looked into who automatically would store samples of semen for five years, which is perhaps totally reasonable if you're a 30-year-old um, undergoing treatment, but less if you're two. So there are fewer guidelines on that. And then there are the practicalities as well in terms of there are guidelines saying that we should offer and refer for fertility preservation, but actually not every centre can carry out the procedures and even the centres that carry out the procedures don't all have access to somewhere to actually store the samples. So there are some technical um, and um, logistical issues involved as well. So we've got a combination now of differences according to age, differences according to gender. Now we're getting to differences according to the practicalities uh, where the child might be treated. Mm-hmm. So how how does that pan out? How, what, what did you find in your study? We found that essentially for post-pubertal boys, everywhere was quite happy to offer that and people were frequently referring um, teenage boys for semen cryopreservation. And most places were at least discussing um, the option of oocyte or ovarian cryopreservation in the post-pubertal females. In the younger age group, um, particularly testicular cryopreservation is not being offered as routinely. And I think that that's partly because of the fact that it remains experimental, but there definitely seems to be a discrepancy in that. Um, So we find in the post-pubertal age group, boys are offered more, but generally post-pubertal children are offered more than the pre-pubertal. And and, and you can see how that that might reflect some of the technical difficulties. Um, Would you mind commenting on whether there's any regional differences in in there as well? Certainly, um, just just looking at our raw data... um, the devolved nations, so so Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, as a whole seemed to be particularly strong at referring for um, for cryopreservation um, of all kinds. Um, there are some differences across England, but it's very difficult to make huge um, judgments. So there, we had responses from 18 of the 20 centres. So actually, once we break them down into different areas we're only talking about four or five centers so it's difficult to really reliably say some things about that what we do know is that there were also differences between how how fertility preservation was funded and that varied both geographically and by the different types of fertility preservation so we know that um, in the devolved nations again their funding 
because none of them relied on charitable sources, whereas within er- there are some areas of England relying on charitable funding to fund the storage of these samples. So it's not just a matter of technicalities, you'd say, that there is variation in the UK yeah. in terms of offering this, this area of um, fertility preservation. Yeah, and there's also a difference in how long those samples are stored for, and that varied from five years to indefinite or until the 60th birthday. So, again, it was really, really quite dramatic how different things Mm. could be. So do families know? That's a really good question, and I, I don't think people explicitly tell them. I think there are things that they're obviously aware of, so... For example, if you have to refer them to another centre for their procedure, it's obvious that not all centres carry this out. Um, I don't think that there's anybody sitting down and saying, if I worked in this place, I'd be referring you for this. And if I worked in that place, I'd be referring you for that. And I think Mm. that probably that's because until we got this paper together, we didn't actually know for certain. We might have had our suspicions, but we didn't know that. But that said, the paediatric cancer community and the amount of family support, particularly with in the age of social media, they all talk to each other. And I would be very surprised if they were not, at least some of these families, discovering that actually things were a little bit different in other centres. I've never had a family come to me about facility preservation specifically, but I've certainly had people say, well, actually, there's a mum on the Facebook group who's being treated in Bristol or Edinburgh and they're doing it this way. So how come you're not? So I feel sure that people will have these conversations about fertility preservation too. Mm. So this the strength of uh, of social media, um, this time for uh, for good. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few responsibilities here, what I'm hearing. So one is uh, the funders. Uh, So paediatric oncology is one of the areas where there's, uh, dare I say it, good funding. Yes. um, And where there's an extraordinary amount of clinical research embedded in the clinical arena and where there is an eye for long-term follow-up, as well as an extraordinary process of consenting. Yes. And it's interesting to see that this area may need a bit of work. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're totally right that I think we're very privileged in oncology that our we are well-funded and we're able to fund the things that historically may have been considered to be an extra. But I think increasingly my view as an oncologist and that of many of my colleagues is that the goal of oncological treatment is not just to cure a young person of cancer but to allow them to have the life they would have had if they'd never had that diagnosis and so actually it's just as important in our role making sure that we're looking after these young people's health and what might be happening to them when they're adults as it is making sure we get them through their initial chemo or whatever treatment they may be having. I I like that phrasing uh, Amanda it shows that as, uh, as healthcare providers, we've got some advocacy and that yeah. we can do that. We've already talked about the parents and their uh, capacity to identify uh, what it is that they would like for their child. Um, and just bending back to so the process again of uh, fertility preservation, 
in the consenting process for fertility preservation, is there any ethical considerations, say, um, to have an extra operation for specifically for the prebirtal mm. uh, children? Yeah, I mean, that that's always part of the, the conversation is that depending on where you work, this may well be an extra operation. Um, it's a relatively small operation as things go, but it is surgery. Um, all general anaesthetics carry risks with them and, and families are aware of that. And in some cases, there is a debate about when you offer fertility preservation. So ideally, it would happen immediately before a young person's been exposed to any kind of agent which may damage their fertility. But actually, there may be a balance because whilst we love to offer fertility preservation to everybody, we don't want to do that at the risk of of compromising their treatment. Um, And sometimes it can be difficult making that balance between potentially getting the first cycle of chemotherapy in, knowing that you're perhaps not getting as good a sample as you'd got up front. Sometimes young people just aren't well enough, um, which is the the other consideration. Um, And we know that in some of our patients who are producing semen samples, if they're producing them for us right at the time of diagnosis when they're very unwell, that may not be a high quality sample. So there's a lot about saying that actually we're going to try, but there is no guarantee in any of this and making sure that if people are opting to to go for an extra surgery or to to produce a sample for us that 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 is us trying our best and it's the best we're able to do at the moment but I wouldn't want anybody to go away thinking actually fertility sorted I don't have to worry about that because unfortunately there are still some young people for whom we would we would not be able to preserve their fertility or the samples would be inadequate and there are some young people who perhaps would have had fertility problems without cancer so I think making sure that you're counselling appropriately and that people know that what you're doing you know particularly for the young males where it's fully experimental is this is a risk for no guaranteed benefit we hope there will be a benefit but that isn't guaranteed and I think that that can be quite challenging for parents when you're having these discussions very early after somebody's diagnosis and there's all the you've probably already had to consent them for a clinical trial they've had surgery you've consented them for chemotherapy and now you're having trying to have another quite emotionally charged discussion so it is a a challenging thing to do finally i just just wondered whether you could describe what excellence looks like in this area I think excellence is about every paediatric oncologist in every centre being trained and confident and comfortable to offer fertility preservation to every young person that comes through their door. It's about every young person, regardless of their treating centre, being referred if that's appropriate. And it's about being able to store any samples for an equitable and usable length of time so that we're making sure that these are young people who are having samples stored well into their adult life and not just for an arbitrary time period. And I think that whatever we do, if it's not equitable, then it's not excellent. 
Thank you, Amanda. That was totally enlightening. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. We publish regular podcasts about some of the best content of archives of diseases in childhood. The papers discussed in ADC Spotlight will be available free of charge for a month after the podcast episode releases. If you don't want to miss us, please subscribe on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to get the podcast directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please leave us a review on the Archives of Disease and Childhood podcast page on iTunes. Thank you, and until next month. <laughs>